went and knocked on the door of what we thought was the biggest pop star in the world, and that was Michael Jackson. Tried to get him to do it, which was a very interesting, probably month-long process. Literally, he and his agent, uh, Sandy Gowan, had no idea what we were talking about. No idea what the Super Bowl was? No idea. None. This is Untold Sideline Stories, a podcast where athletes, broadcasters, and employees behind the scenes in the sports industry share their stories and experiences that don't normally make the broadcast. Rebecca Fiorentino here, and on the show today, what do Paul McCartney, Janet Jackson, and Michael Jackson all have in common? They've all performed during a halftime show of the Super Bowl. But who gets to decide if they have this opportunity to perform at the NFL's biggest showcase? And how has the Super Bowl become such a bucket list item to attend? I sit down with a man who spent 35 years in the National Football League, including 26 in charge of the Special Events Department. Jim Steig is my guest today, and he now resides in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. But when he graduated with his bachelor's degree in political science from Miami of Ohio, he wasn't exactly sure what he wanted to do with it. Well, I thought at the time I really wanted to grow up to become a lawyer. I mean, I love sports. I was always involved in it in some way, shape, or form. Being five foot nine, I'm not exactly the guy that's going to take the ball underneath the basket or something like that. I wish I had three-point shots when I was a kid, but, you know, I was great at that, but we didn't have three-point shots in those days. After I graduated, I worked for a year as an accountant, realized I didn't have enough anything going for me. I needed to go back to school, so I went and got my MBA from Wake Forest. You know, the second year, Christmas vacation, you know, now you're all of a sudden you got to start working to get a job. And my dad kind of challenged me. We always wanted sports, go for it. At that point in time, that spring, I kind of went down a dual path. I was applying for all those normal jobs, you know, that a person with an MBA and accounting degree, you know, could get. And at the same point in time, I was going after something in sports. Good news was I got a bunch of job offers in the regular realm. Those days, I know it's hard for everybody to believe, but I wrote letters to every team I could think of, except everybody in New York, because since I was... Originally from Boston, I couldn't see myself doing anything for anybody in New York. <laughs> sure enough, in, in May, I went down to see the Dolphins and got offered a job as their chief accountant, which was kind of out of the blue. It turned out that their guy that there was accountant literally died. Oh, wow. And so the timing was right that they needed to hire somebody, and now they could hire me for all $12,000 a year, which kind of irritated my father because the lowest other job offer I had was 36000 a year. The good news is over the course of the four years there, I, I got every six months they gave me a $2,400 raise. So okay. it was a lot of positive reinforcement. It still only brought me up to $20,000 or something like that. So you went from one Miami to the next Miami, yeah. Miami of Ohio. That's right. Miami, I, I thought Florida. there maybe there was some synergy or something like that in that. But when I got to the Dolphins, literally I was there for a month, and the owner walks in and he says, I'm now putting you in charge of team travel. And, oh, by the way, we're going to Minnesota next week. So get to work. I got forced into a lot of opportunities because, and I know this is hard to believe, there were like 16 people in the front office at that time. Oh, gosh. Now there's probably 160. Yeah. You got all sorts of responsibilities that took place because I lived out in Miami Lakes and our offices were downtown and our training camp was at Biscayne College, which is like four-fifths of the way to Miami Lakes. I'd always volunteer to take the mail out there at night. 
so I could stop by there. And George Young, who went on to become general manager of the Giants, I'd go in with him, and he'd literally teach me football. He had a little office that was probably <laughs> no more than a desk and whatever, no screens or anything like that, you know, the projectors projecting on the white wall. And he would teach me a lot of stuff about football and what was going on. And uh, the next year in March of was this, 75, I guess, I, I went to uh, the owner took me to the owner's meeting out in, in Coronado in San Diego. And so all of a sudden I'm sitting in, to, in these owner's meetings at 25 what, years old. 25 years old. Yeah, you know, and, and I, I remember the first meeting I walked in with Shula, and the two of us sat down, and I'm sitting next to Paul Brown, you know, the owner of the Bengals, and across from me is George Hallis, you know, the owner of the Bears, and I'm kind of going like, what in the world am I doing here? So because of what happened, there's the right timing there. I got a lot of exposure to the league, and, you know, I got to negotiate contracts. I mean, I remember we did Bob Greasy's contract, which was – then one of the highest contracts, I mean, we were paid him off $250,000 a year, and everybody thought we were nuts. You know, think about that for a second, where we stand these days. What was your biggest challenge that you had to face, and how did you overcome that? I think the toughest challenge, and I'm not sure I really did overcome it, trying to understand that you were not, you got kind of too big for your britches sometimes, because all of a sudden, you're 25, 26, 27, and you've got all this exposure in the community, I mean, you become very visible in the community, and you're doing things that, you know, you don't think so. And so you, you kind of get a little bit of a swelled head of how important you are and what's going on. And, you know, I hate to say it, you're all replaceable. <laughs> and here I am exposed at the top of the, the league, dealing with, you know, at those point millionaire owners and, and Pete Rosell and people like that. You really think you're something special. So I, I think that was the toughest challenge was really trying to manage that. Even when I got to the league office, that the toughest job was ego management. It's managing your own ego, but the other side of it, you're managing the egos of those people you're around it, whether it's owners or coaches or whatever it is, and feeding their egos the right way. Was there a moment where you had like to humble yourself and realize, all right, <laughs> Jim, calm down here? <laughs> yeah, I think there were a number of those. I mean, the first times you see yourself in the media... You know, and you always get afraid of how it's going to pan out. I could think one of those decisions I was made was at the Orange Bowl, the the net that came up for the extra points and, and the field goals was really close to the end zone. And people were stepping on it or throwing things at it and things like that. So whenever we go to raise it, we couldn't raise in time in order to catch the ball. So I remember one game I decided, okay, well, we're just going to raise it and leave it up. Well, that wasn't a good decision because all the people sitting behind him were all upset, you know, at that point that they had to look through the net. So you learn from your experience. So after four years with the Miami Dolphins, NFL Commissioner Pete Rozelle told Jim Steig, I've got a job for you. Why did you trust him? He's Pete Rozelle. <laughs> Simply because. <laughs> yeah, well, he, you know, he's, you know, he is the commissioner of commissioners, mm-hmm. you know, over the course of the last hundred years. He's the greatest commissioner in any sport. And he was a very... Uh, charismatic guy but he was always very honest when I got hired up there my first job was to go to work at the Super Bowl in Miami and observe what's going on and then kind of write up a report afterwards of how we could do better and what could happen and then went to the Pro Bowl in LA the next week and did the same thing but the Super Bowl was in Miami the Super Bowl was in Miami and which made it easier because I could live at home and didn't have to worry about that it gave us more time to think about what was going to take place and your title 
at that point, I was director of administration. For the NFL. For the NFL. So after the Pro Bowl, it was about 10 days after, Pete asked me to come in and talk to him. And he says, okay, here, here's what the deal is. I'm changing your title. I, I think we're going to call you director of special events. Okay. And you're now in charge of the Super Bowl, the Pro Bowl, the draft, and everything else we do around here outside of the league office. How did you take that? Well, I was 29, and you kind of go on like, wait a second. Even at those days in 1979, the Super Bowl was a huge deal, you know, and it was it's kind of like, wow, you know, I'm going to be in charge of the Super Bowl. So, yeah, it was very humbling but very challenging at that point in time. So what was the first thing that you did? Panic. (laughs) (laughs) Super Bowl the next year was in L.A. in Pasadena. I spent an awful lot of time in Pasadena um, trying to get to know everything that was going on. I mean, I I can remember going out there for two weeks at a pop to do things. Uh, All those, well, you go around, I mean, literally, I remember all 106,000 seats in the stadium, walking all of them to make sure they're all there. But all those things that I'd observed saying that we could do better or whatever, now all of a sudden I had to try to implement them. And at the same point in time, the guys who had been kind of in charge of this, and part of the reason they put me there was Don Weiss, who was now the number two guy at the league. The Super Bowl had kind of been his before that. Pete wanted him in the office all the time. He didn't want him out traveling. Gosh, I, I didn't know what the hell I was really kind of doing. I was learning it on the fly and trying to listen and observe and that sort of stuff. I mean, it took till Detroit two years later that I really felt like, okay, I know what I'm doing. That one I felt because I could plan it from beginning to end was kind of the first one that I really truly owned. So it takes a whole year to plan for this. I think it takes two and a half, three years. To plan for one day. Yeah, it takes the award award process and negotiating with those cities is the beginning of it. And that can be done two and a half, three and a half years out. So all those things, whether it's hotel rooms or it's practice sites, the more you went back to a the same city, you tried to correct the what things that were wrong. Before. Right. So it started there, you know, and then you eased into it. You know, maybe you go visit that city once, three years out, and a couple times, two years out, and then, the, you know, last year you're on a full bore. But a lot of the decisions you're making, simple ones like where are they going to practice, where are they going to stay, you're making – 18 months out because what you'd like to do is have the people that run those places come to the next Super Bowl and observe it firsthand. To learn. Yeah, because you can't, when you walk into a team hotel, you could talk to your, you know, blue in the face about what it's going to be like unless you see it. You, then you go, oh, wait a second. <laughs> you didn't tell me it was going to be this crazy and this was what it was going to take place. So having somebody from that hotel literally staying with the team and observing it made things go a lot easier. What goes into deciding who's going to sing the national anthem and who's going to play at halftime? Well, the anthem's interesting because when I got there, I think it was Cheryl Ladd the first year. Then the second year, Don Weiss wanted Helen O'Connell. Now, I'm sure you know exactly who Helen O'Connell <laughs> is. Helen O'Connell sang for the big, some big band back in the 40s or whatever it was. Okay. So that was Super Bowl 15. Now we're going to Detroit. And I told you I'm feeling a little bit better that it's mine. So I remember going into Roselle. And I said, well, there's only one person that could sing the anthem in Detroit. There's only one, there's only one diva from Detroit that matters. So and I said, I'm going to go after that diva. And he says, yeah, good luck, uh, Diana Ross. Diana Ross. Sure enough, she said yes. And I think that changed the way we did anthems from there on out. Instead of 
the Colgate Five, which was Super Bowl Thirteen or stuff like that, or Pep Bands or things. All of a sudden, now you've got a name attached to it. I remember getting Billy Joel and you know. Did it take some convincing to ask Diana Ross? Actually, not that much. Not that much. I mean, I I will tell you this on game day. She's a pro's pro, but she was more nervous than you've ever believed because you, you start to sit there and go, wait a second, it's not only 80,000 people, but it's 120 million, you know, Everyone which is bigger, bigger than what I think it is. And, and I remember that when, we, when Harry Connick did it, you know, he, he was going to sing it. He didn't want to pre-record it, didn't want to do anything. So fine, now he's going to sing it. And he, yeah, I've done this, no problem. Don't worry about it. And so he gets out there, and literally you can see his dad about 10 feet from away lipping the words to him because he was, it was, all of a sudden the moment got to him about how big that was and everybody that was watching. So I, I used to always kind of look and say, you know, what's, you know, who won Grammys and who's legendary? If, if there is a tie to that community, that's great. It was also people that I kind of wanted to hear myself. <laughs> All those over the years, it was just kind of trying to get the right person. And the toughest, ironically, the weirdest one is we had booked Whitney at one point to do it, and she backed out because she fired her manager. And she Whitney was big, Houston. Yeah, she was making her own, going to go to Australia on tour. And so she was double booked, so she canceled. So What year was this? This was 88. Didn't feel bad about it. Came back and booked her again, and obviously that became one of the iconic moments and Super Bowl history but yeah those were kind of fun half times were interesting because they evolved we went and knocked on the door what we thought was the biggest pop star in the world and that was Michael Jackson tried to get him to do it which was a very interesting probably month long process literally he and his agent uh, Sandy Gallon had no idea what we were talking about no idea what the Super Bowl was no idea none really you know, couldn't tell you if the football was pumped or stuffed or, you know, what the hell was taking place. So you, you could sit there and talk about how big it was and all this sort of stuff. and who, you know. But he didn't care. It, it just didn't resonate with him. Wow. And I remember we're in a meeting, the last meeting we had where he said yes, is we started going through all these countries to get the Super Bowl live. And Michael says, um, you're doing this live in countries that I will never do a concert in. I said, Yes. Okay, I'm in. <laughs> wow. And so that changed everything and how we did it. And that was 93. You know, it still goes down as, I think, one of the... I mean, it's a monumental change in how it went about. And The next year, 94, was very difficult because nobody wanted to do it because they didn't want to be compared to him. Oh, you didn't want to follow Michael right. Jackson. Yeah, and the only guy we had that throw, showed some sort of interest was Garth Brooks. But he threw out a number. He didn't want to get paid, but he wanted to pay his producer a million dollars because he'd just come off of doing this big live concert in Texas Stadium. Our budget for Michael Jackson was $2 million. We weren't going much over $2 million to do this thing ever again and didn't think so. Now, all of a sudden, it's $8, $10 million. So we ended up doing a country show. And it literally didn't turn back around until, guess who shows up again? Diana Ross. And we booked her to do the anthem in, or halftime in Phoenix. We flew her out of the stadium in a helicopter. Off of the field. Off the field, yeah. We brought the helicopter in kind of at the tail end of her show, picked her up as she's singing, sitting on the doorstep or whatever you want to call it of the helicopters. It's raised up. Are you okayed this? Yeah, I I felt good about it, but that kind of rechanged everything again, and all of a sudden now it's become a bucket list thing for 
big-time mega entertainers. And I went after Bruce forever and ever. I love Bruce Springsteen. I did everything I could do except being on him. I, his agent and I became phone buddies forever and ever because I'd always come after, oh, you know, Stevie Van Zandt, you know, run down the list to them. Met all of them, tried to get him. They all wanted him to do it. He didn't want to do it. Really? He did Why? not want to do it. Well, he thought it was selling out. And then, of course, like three years after I left, he did it. Because it re-energizes their career. I hate to say it even when they're there. Their record sales pop off the charts again. And There's certainly a lot of positives, but there's also... Those people who are like, well, why are they playing at the Super Bowl? What do you say to the haters, per se? Well, I think what it is, you've got to look at who, the, who they are. The, all, they've all been icons in some way, shape, or form. Okay, I get that. You, you may not like Bruce, or you may not like the Stones, or you may not like Madonna, or, or whatever it is. But they're all kind of iconic. There's always a criticism, you know, who it is and what they're going to do. Because you get it's usually led by the sports writers, who quite honestly aren't that well-versed in the entertainment side. So they end up in a point that they they say, oh, it's awful. you got to realize who you're trying to entertain. Roselle's philosophy very early on, they told me, was I can't count on this game being 20-19 to 19 with a missed field goal in the last play of the game. Some of them are going to be 55-17. to 17. And so I need this other stuff that's around it that make it memorable. It was a friend of mine in Tampa. He was in charge of the host committee there at 84. And I talked to him the Monday after the game. He says, that's the greatest football game I've ever been to. I said, the game stunk. I said, you know, Theismann threw an interception to Jack Squirek in the end zone at the end of the first half, and that put the Raiders up by like 24 at the time. No, no, the game. What do you mean? He says, well, literally the way he defined it was, you know, from the minute I left my house till the minute I get back, you know, the parties I went to and what took place on the field with the entertainment and all this. It was a great game. So, yeah, if you end up with a great game, you're kind of going to forget some of the other stuff. I wish that was true in 04 because we had a great game, but nobody forgot Janice Jackson. But How did you <laughs> deal with that situation? I didn't deal with that very well. <laughs> I did not deal with it. And that game... You're trying to think of what happened at halftime, what happened with Janet. And I'm at that point in time focused on getting halftime off the field, getting the teams back out, giving the signal for the teams to leave the locker room, all this sort of stuff. I'm sitting next to Mike Pereira, who's, you know, our head of officiating, and he's got a TiVo set up there. Did you see what happens now? So he said, let me show you. <laughs> so he goes back with the TiVo. Remember those days of TiVo? You know, goes back with TiVo and... and Shows it to me. Show it to me again. <laughs> so then I called down the, the producer, Sally Fertini, with MTV, and I said, did you see what just happened? And you can hear them all high-fiving each other for a great show and all that sort of stuff. But we look at it, and then she calls back and says, oh, my God. At that point in time, we all got together and tried to do the best we could to to manage out of that crisis. Yeah, that was a wild 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so then the next year... Next year, the, the irony next year, and I'll tell you this story... Well, we had had connections at Super Bowl 36 with Paul McCartney. He had called us a month before the game and wanted to be in the pregame, which he was. McCartney's the guy. It's the one guy we know we can get that makes all the sense in the world. So we go back, brought Steve Bornstein in, who had just taken over the NFL network. Bornstein, they said, no, we don't think he's appropriate for the NFL point I'm kind of saying I, I don't know what appropriate means I mean because he was arrested for marijuana and 20 years ago I, I don't know what appropriate means magically somehow there's an offer letter faxed to McCartney 
he signs it and sends it back and accepts it. <laughs> so that's how we ended up with McCartney. His line always was, well, you don't have to worry about me having a wardrobe malfunction. Um, but I think it was the perfect choice at the right time and all that sort of stuff. So 26 years in the NFL with special events. What would you say would be your biggest accomplishment? I think the most important thing we ever did was Super Bowl 36. Uh, for you youngins, you probably don't know what that meant. 9-11 had happened you know, the previous September. We did not have two weeks between the championship games and the Super Bowl that year. So somehow we had to make up that week's worth of games. We ended up, the decision was to try to move the Super Bowl back a week. Nobody gets married on Super Bowl weekend, but they tend to maybe after the week after. Mm. So you have all these ballrooms and things like this in New Orleans that have all booked, and now we got to change wedding dates or, you know, oh. through, you know, the state wrestling tournaments in town, and it's got to change its dates. And, you know, hotels went from charging $29 for the wrestlers to $329, you know. So we had to move all that. But more importantly than that, we weren't going to sporting events. We weren't going to anything at big arenas because everybody's afraid that there was going to be a bomb. Uh, we weren't getting on airplanes to fly for business or anything like that. If we get there by train or drive, we did it. But nobody was flying anymore. So I thought, and now here's the, quote, biggest target <laughs> that everybody would talk about, that if anybody was ever going to blow something up, you go after the Super Bowl, that would really devastate the country even more. So being able to produce that in a safe fashion, and that then on the heels of the Winter Olympics, that really kind of got the country back to where it was. And I don't know what the viewership was of that game, but it was it, the the whole tone of that show was so good. U2's halftime show was fantastic with the scroll of all those people that had died, and, you know, from Pennsylvania to D.C. to New York. You know, the anthem, Mariah Carey. Uh, you know, said McCartney was involved in the pregame show. Uh, George H.W. Bush, you know, tossed the coin with Roger Staubach. It was just the tone of it was great, and I think it was it was patriotic, a little more over the top than normal. Uh, and then the game's decided by Vidatieri hitting a kick on the last play of the game, and as Bob Kraft so aptly put it, isn't it appropriate that the Patriots win on this day or something like that? So I thought that game was the most important thing we ever did. Because if we had failed somehow, or if there had been any kind of issue in the city from a bomb standpoint or anything like that during the whole time, we would have gone back in a tailspin. You know, we did all sorts of things. That you, we had an off-place off mail facility where all the mail to our hotel, the team hotels, the practice sites, the stadium, went to this other place and were all inspected before they turned around and brought it into us. You could imagine, Super Bowl, how many FedExes are coming through you know, for various things. So we created things that you now think is standard. You know, you come here to Duke and you, know, you go through magnetometers to go in the stadium. Guess what? Where was the first place that was done? Was that Super Bowl? You know, we have Jersey barricades around the outside so you can't drive trucks up to the building. You know, first place that was really done was at that Super Bowl. And, you know, we had bomb sniffing dogs all over the place. We had actually had a device that we put in the middle of the stadium. Uh, that could smell any air quality changes that took place. The halftime and the anthem are not the only things that happen surrounding the Super Bowl. What are all the other things that you are in charge of to make the Super Bowl as big as it is now? I think the things that stand out, you know, the hotels are big. We used to sign 16,000 hotels 
which probably put us in the realm of the biggest convention in the country. So we had 16,000 rooms. We had this, so we had to deal with all sorts of hotels from the top of the line, you know, where it's called Four Seasons, down, you know, to the days in, you know, to put different people, different styles are going to be there. So that had to take place. We had to find the practice sites for the teams. You know, we had to do our own headquarters. We had a media center we had to set up to get that done. The teams, we had, the, you know, as much as the league has all this time, the team literally snaps their fingers and they have to be there. So we've got to have everything in place for them with them being able to make some adjustments to it, everything from ordering Xerox machines to, you know, their phone systems to furniture to, you know, printing party tickets or whatever it is. That's We, we did a, a checklist that we give every team coming in of all the questions they have to ask right away to be able to move to get there. You know, you're traveling with two planes, one plane, and when are they coming in, you know, all that sort of stuff. Uh, we designed the logo, you know, print all the tickets, we distribute all the tickets. You literally knew everything that was going on. We were the first ones to put jumbotrons in a stadium. I had been at a concert in L.A. called the Us Concert. First time I'd ever seen a jumbotron, a portable jumbotron, put up for a concert. The only stadium in the country had a jumbotron at that point was the Dodgers. So I talked to the guy at Diamond Vision, can you put portable jumbotrons in a stadium? So we put it in the Rose Bowl that year. Next year, they were in 12 stadiums, you know, and all of a sudden it just kept growing. Obviously, it is what it is now. Now you've got 12 of them in every stadium. So <laughs> being able to do that because that made the game experience so much better. And we, we tried all sorts of dumb things that stuck. Uh, like what? Well, you'd put uh, television sets in the concession stands. So Nobody, that people could watch. Yeah, when you turn around getting the hot dog, you don't lose track of what's taking place. You put sound in the concourses and the restrooms or something I, I i discovered that of the weirdest way of i was at a dodger game and i'm in the i'm in the restroom and i hear vince scully's voice in the restroom announcing the game i said god the dodgers are brilliant you know that's a great idea well it wasn't that people had all their transistor radios they were carrying with them and that's what you were getting but that made me think you know let's we need to do that we need to put that in the elevators we need to put it in the concession stands we need to put it in some places there and now i think a lot of people do that so you know we tried to create different things that people i I wanted to say we wanted to be a leader in the nfl we wanted the uh, the 32 teams to go home and say you know yeah let's try that and we wanted the other leagues to come and go yeah the nfl experience which started because one of my vices in life is i'm a i collect baseball cards and football cards and it was at the end of the 80s, and it was kind of the craze. So we did, you know, a card show in New Orleans. We drew 40,000 people to it, which was bigger than the national card show. Because I figured if anybody had disposable money to buy a Mickey Mantle rookie card, it was guys that came to the Super Bowl. So the next year I said, well, let's take this to the next extreme. We created a thing called NFL Town Square, which the idea was, I, I thought of it as a shopping mall. You know, one end would be the card show. At the other end, we'd set up this big merchandise store. We'd get NFL films to put a theater in the middle, and we'd fill in all the other shops and things like that around it. Had 73,000 people show up for that. And that begot the next year, all of a sudden it got branded the NFL Experience, which now draws a quarter of a million people to it. And now you can't be a major sporting event. With the ACC football championship, they've got that type of thing you know, on the day of the game. Every team or whatever it is has got something that's a fan experience interactive thing outside for the fans during the game so yeah a lot of those things were things we got to, we just got the ability to try 
you know, and then go from there. So, what's something that you tried and it failed miserably? I don't like to think of any of those things. I don't, <laughs> don't think any of those. Nothing failed. Well, the one I liked the most, which I, they don't do anymore, which I really thought was a great idea. I still think it's a great idea. Is we gave everybody a little radio, ironically the size of an American Express card. Why? Because they sponsored it. Um, but on that radio, it had five stations. So when you got there, because I thought the one thing you did at the Super Bowl that drove you nuts is predating you. So, Thanks. You know, you, you listen to it on the radio. You listen to your home broadcast. Now you get to the Super Bowl and you're a Buffalo Bills fan. I, I can't listen to the broadcast because I don't have So you put the national radio broadcast, both team radio, you put one in Spanish and you know, I forget what the fifth one was, but you put that all on the on the channel, and now they can sit there and listen to the broadcast themselves while they're watching the game. Meantime, you can feed all those things, and you can force feed your commercials into it if you want to, or things like that. I really thought that was a great idea, and it was it was copied and still is copied by the Olympics and NASCAR. Yeah, yeah, NASCAR went the same way with that. So I think that that was really a good idea. The NFL doesn't do it anymore. I remember. Uh, seat cushions. Now, when you go to the Final Four or whatever, you get a seat cushion, mm-hmm. right? Well, that started because we were playing the Super Bowl at Stanford in '85. Basically, it was mountains of dirt with two by fours going down the side and wood planks going in front of it. Okay, it was the farm. It is the farm, you know. So it was the basis of everything. And I'm going. I got all these people coming here. I can't have them sitting on wood planks. So how about if we go out and figure out a way to put 85,000 seat cushions down in some way, shape, or form. Okay, well, we're not going to pay for it. I've got to find a sponsor. So it was a little kind of upstart company in, in Silicon Valley. I went and met with the CEO and said, uh, would you consider sponsoring? You know, the seat cushions, how much it costs? I said, well, that's probably about $135,000. Okay, I'll do it. Well, that was Steve Jobs. No way. <laughs> you know, so he saw, you know, his line to me was, People going to take them home? I said, yeah, absolutely. And they were for a number of years. You could see those every once in a while because they had the Apple logo on one side and the Super Bowl logo on the other side. You know, you still go up and buy them on eBay. So after many years in the NFL, if you can imagine, Jim wanted to try something new. He became the director of the inaugural Pac-12 football championship game, and then he wanted to do something that no one had ever done before. I did an NHL hockey game in Dodger Stadium. That was an experience that was kind of fun. It was easier because they then gave me part of it. We'll let you do the L.A. game, but you also got to do a game in Chicago. So I did a game at Soldier Field, which was like minus 10. Oh, wow, what a difference. Which made the contrast between the 75 <laughs> and L.A. And then one of the last things I did was I got called by Sean White, snowboarder extraordinaire. He had this idea, and he, he still does it, where he had bought the rights to what we now call Big Air, snowboarding skiing competition off a 180-foot ramp. I thought this really sounds kind of cool. It'd be neat. And we're going to do it at the Rose Bowl. So we're baking snow at the Rose Bowl (laughs) to do this. So I became the winter sports guy in L.A. Sean looked at himself as an entertainer because he was in a band. So now he wanted to do Coachella meets snowboarding. So we had 18 bands perform over three days. So we're managing, you know, 18 bands and that sort of stuff in addition to the athletic competition so that was a very intriguing you know time. that's incredible yeah well i like to ask as as you're looking back at your career how do you measure success that's a very interesting question 
there was an interesting. I I had to give a eulogy to a, a very dear friend of mine, and there was a quote. And I'm going to screw this up. It was something the Egyptians said, which was when they reached the gates to heaven, they'd be asked two questions: Did you bring joy to your wife, and did you bring joy to others? And you kind of like to say that that's kind of where you want to be. Are you happy in everything you've done? Have you done something that you could see that people that don't even recognize you existed? To me, when I go into a stadium and you see a jumbotron or you go in to see a seat cushion or you, you hear sound in the restroom or you, you know, you hanging parking passes or something like that that we did for the first time and you go, yeah, you know, we did that and it's still something that's making the experience better for everybody to attend these events makes you feel good that you were there. Now, nobody knows that I did it which is fine, but the, I think in, in your own mind, you're going, yeah, that's great. And you're in the business of creating memories. And if you really created memories for them that they won't forget, you know, 20 years from now, they're saying, you know, well, I was at the Super Bowl, you know, back with, you know, Jim Plunkett threw to Kenny King down the sideline or something like that. Oh, my God, you won't believe what that halftime show really looked like there or, or you know, what I got when I got there. It's what you want to do. Well, I always like to end this with a fun question. If you were to play golf with a fearsome foursome, who would be in your crew? Well, number one on the list is Arnold. Arnold Palmer, nice. Okay, because that's why I went to Wake Forest. I mean, who who else from, you know, living in Indiana, Ohio, knew where Wake Forest was, okay? If it wasn't for Arnold Palmer putting it on the map and, and me thinking that I could play golf. <laughs> Ted Williams is, you know, I grew up with him as my idol, um, I still got more memorabilia of him in my house than I can believe, so I, Ted would definitely fall in that category. This is going to be one that everybody's going to go, who the hell are you talking about? I, I think the guy I idolized in basketball was Rick Mount, who went to Purdue and was, you know, before the three-point shot, was, you know, I think the greatest shooter. Maybe still is the greatest shooter. Maybe that's why I would, when I'm watching Duke and it's, whether it's Grayson Allen or Trajan Langdon, I always like the guy that can hit the three. Thank you to Jim Steak for being a guest on the podcast and sharing his story. If you want to follow along with his adventures, you can find him on Twitter at Jim Steak, S-T-E-E-G. He is currently teaching at Duke University, but his latest project involves the University of North Carolina, consulting with the soccer and lacrosse teams on their new stadium. If you have any suggestions or someone you think that should be my next guest, send them to at Becca Fiorentino on Twitter or Instagram. Music produced by Eli O'Neill Music. Oh, and don't forget to subscribe. I'm Rebecca Fiorentino, and you've been listening to the Untold Sideline Stories podcast. <laughs>